This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by De Grazia Gallery in the Sun Museum. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Chella Mann talks about life as a deaf, transgender, genderqueer Jewish person of color and his belief that identity is a true continuum. The experience of belonging and bodies that are out of place explore the art of Nazafar and Lodfi, part of the Tucson Museum of Art exhibition 4x4. And local builder John Wesley Miller shares the story of his family's 1948 journey to start a new life, part of the Archive Tucson Oral History Project. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's not an understatement to say that my guest Chella Mann's identity cannot be expressed in any single term. Mann will turn 23 years old next November, but he's already achieved success as a fine artist, a designer, a model, an actor, columnist, and author. He's launched a clothing line, become a social media influencer with his partner Mary V. Benoit, and in 2019, he was cast as the genderqueer superhero Jericho for the DC comic series The Titans. Chella Man began to lose his hearing when he was about three years old, and today he can only hear through the use of cochlear implants. He grew up in a Chinese-Jewish home in a small town in Pennsylvania, and his earliest memories include discussing gender with his mother, the beginning of a journey across the spectrum of identity, something Chella Man is honest and open about in his new autobiographical book, Continuum. We'll hear Chella Man read a short excerpt from the book next, followed by an interview. The sound quality is a little different than what you're used to hearing on Spotlight. It was recorded via Zoom for ease of communication. I learned that stubbornness, while often seen as a negative trait, saved me. I refused to give up who I knew I was, pleading for the haircut I longed for. Eventually, my mom grew tired of my tantrums, and we headed to a salon. The war is won, I thought. I was finally going to get the haircut that would bridge my body with my mind. The familiar mixture of shampoo and hair dye wafted in the air as my mom and I entered the salon. Usually, those scents would trigger dread, but this time, they only amplified my excitement. Reaching the front desk, my mom and the haircutter spoke about my wishes. I could only pick up the words pixie cut being thrown around. Really? Even hairstyle names are gendered. To this day, the word pixie still makes me cringe. I hopped into the chair I had grown to hate, knowing this time would be different. Locking eyes with my reflection, I watched the shears dance around my head, gradually replacing disconnection with unity as my dark brown locks fell to the floor. After this haircut, strangers always perceived me as a boy. Sometimes this made me feel closer to them than my own family. They saw me, not a constructed facade. There's the stereotype 
that people who are gender fluid and exploring their identity in that way are confused, that they don't know what they want. Mm. But you have always known what you wanted. Absolutely, yes. I think it's the world that really confused me because I was presented these binaries and I didn't fit either of them. Making the decision to follow this voice, this drive that you had, I think has made you a very, a very sober person. Like you seem like you're very rooted and grounded in listening to your body. But you tell me if that's true. I am very rooted in myself. I'm very aware of what I'm feeling. And it's been a practice, you know, and a consistent practice. It's something I choose every single day. You can always choose something against your authenticity, something against your intuition. But I don't. I really take those jumps. No matter how uncomfortable it may be, it just leads me to more comfortability overall, because I'm more myself. Uh, Many people hearing you speak for the first time might not know that you are a deaf person. Explain something about your particular uh, circumstance with deafness. Yeah, so I think a huge misconception is that to be deaf, the stereotype is you do not speak, you only use sign language, you maybe fully rely on lip reading, But being deaf, just as the title of my book states, is a continuum. There are so many different ways to be deaf, just as many ways as there are deaf people in the world. And for me, you know, I started losing my hearing at four years old. So by that time, I had learned to speak verbally. I also got cochlear implants later in my life at 12. And then again, for the other side at 14. And through that time, I also was learning sign language because my mom has been incredible. You know, she wanted me to have all options available. And so being deaf is defined by however I am. You shared the story of the first time you left home and it was to go to a camp with other deaf youth. I found your turn of phrase very amusing when you said that conversations were flying all around you when you got to the campus. For the first time, I thought of being in a room full of signing conversations would be the equivalent of being in a room where everyone's talking. Exactly. I mean, there's so much noise. You just can't hear it. (laughs) I never thought of that before. Uh, When you say that as you've been living in New York the last couple of years, that you have been wanting to build deeper roots with the deaf community, how exactly do you go about doing that? I just wonder how you make deaf friends. Yes, that's a great question. I mean, just like making any friends in any set community, you just start going to events. You know, you meet one person, which leads to another, and it's a domino effect. It's the same in the deaf community, you know? I mean, like, if you want to learn Japanese, you probably go to Japanese lessons and meet people and et cetera, et cetera. It's the same. So I was lucky enough to meet uh, my close friend now, DeMarco, pretty early on when I moved in New York City. And he's been incredible. He's been great friend and mentor to me who really affirmed, you know, being a deaf is on a continuum and introduced me to other deaf friends such as Lauren Ridloff, who introduced me to acting, actually. She was the one who forwarded me that random casting call that ended up being for Titans in Jericho. But yeah, I mean, since then, it's been a domino effect as well as me just doing deep dives on social media and online. I mean, that's an incredible resource if you can't tangibly access community around you, you can always intangibly access that on your phone. One of the great surprises of your book was it's a love story. A good one too. (laughs) Without going through the story yourself, you're very open about your personal life and your relationship with the wonderful Mary V. Tell people kind of what they might expect to read in terms of that love story in the book. 
well, let's see, how do I begin to describe my relationship with Mary B? It was something that I felt the moment that I laid eyes on her. And I know that sounds cheesy and I would always roll my eyes at that line growing up, but then it happened to me and I don't anymore. And I believe it because, you know, it's true. And, you know, through my transition, I met her when I was identifying as a cisgender girl. And she at the time thought she was straight. So you definitely follow a rocky journey of figuring out what we are to one another knowing that we have this deep connection, yet all these labels clouding our heads and being, living, thriving in a world that doesn't accept queer people. So there was a lot of support. There was a lot of unpacking and resilience and strength and love, you know, that our journey has taken. And I touch upon some of those things in the book, but there is still, there's so much more to be said. It's kind of impossible to say or condense what love is, what our love is in one book. When you do uh, gallery shows, I, I've seen a video of you doing Q&A with the audience and you're shirtless. Yes. And I also know that you are proud of your scarves. Very proud. You take your shirt off as much as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I mean, it's a good practice. I. Uh, I consider my top surgery scars to be tattoos, you know, because tattoos are something permanent that you get on your body intentionally and they mean something for some people. For me, they do. And top surgery scars were exactly the same. You know, they're permanent on my body and they mean something to me. They're this trophy of everything that I've been through. They're showing the huge privilege I have to be able to even show them off. Most people in other countries can't even walk outside and show off their scars the same way or even get top surgery to get those scars in the first place. And I feel so proud of who I am. I feel so proud of the resilience and the strength that it's taken me to be here and stand there with my shirt off in my body. And it's something that I always want to share with the world because I can and I have that privilege to. A teachable moment in your book is when you shared your desire to get your top surgery with your sister and parents. And you mentioned that they were supportive, but they made a bit of a mistake in asking, are you sure? Yes, I mean, I'm very sure. I've personally known what I wanted and who I am since day one. This isn't the same because transness and queerness is not a monolith for everyone, you know? But for me, I've always known. And what confused me was actually what the world was telling me to be, the girl that it was telling me to be, because I clearly wasn't, I exist beyond the binaries of boy and girl. I'm just, I don't allow myself to have limitations that way. But remind those of us who may one day be in a situation where a loved one comes to us and says, I'm going to make this change. If we want to be supportive, what are some good moves? that we can make? I think first and foremost, asking them, how can I support you? Because every single person's answer is going to be different. Just being there for them, you know, voicing that you are there for them. Only if you truly are though, you know, and um, telling them whatever they choose is valid. It's their body and so it's their choice. And yeah, again, just checking in with them, not just asking that once, how can I support you? but every now and then and just having an open conversation with them like how often should I ask you this um does it make you uncomfortable if I ask you this or do you feel safe when I ask you this 
just talking to them very openly and vulnerably. That's the best thing you can do. I'd like to ask you about your role as a model. I think there might be an opinion that the fashion community is more welcoming and more inclusive. But then again, there are people who might say, well, there's a superficial element to the fashion world <clears throat> and that perhaps they are judging the package more than what's inside. Well, it's definitely on a continuum. There's no binary that it's either good or it's bad. And every situation is circumstantial. But I can absolutely say we've made some steps forward because if you just look, even 10 years ago, the people on the billboards are much different than the people now. And it really depends on who you're working with, you know, um, in regards to whether or not you're being tokenized, which I believe is what you were referring to. They have to truly care and respect for you and your personhood, be willing to listen to the feedback and allow you to speak your truth unfiltered. If they are just uplifting you for the labels that you are and not seeing you for anything past that, not seeing your compassion, your grace, your personality, you're being tokenized. So it's important to understand how to set boundaries for yourself, to know when and when you don't feel comfortable. There are definitely parts of the fashion industry where they only care about that tokenization and they don't see queerness or disability or diversity as a truth, they see it as a trend, but there are at the same time places that do see it as a truth and places that truly want to share and uplift these stories. It's on a continuum. What if you had told 10-year-old or 15-year-old, even 17-year-old Chella that you would be on a runway, that you would be in front of cameras? <laughs> what would young Chella's response have been? I would definitely laugh at you because um, I wouldn't believe it. I also had a very hard time believing that I was beautiful. So to say to my younger self that I was a model, there's no way. I would just shake my head at you. Do you think that you would have gone into these new, newer fields without the relationship you have with Mary V? Do you think that the two of you coming together opened up these artistic worlds to you more? No, I think I would have found my way here regardless because this is where I'm supposed to be. But having her by my side makes everything better. All right. I'm going to say that's the interview right there. That's a great note to end on. Do you <laughs> yeah. feel comfortable with what we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. I'm you okay. know, pretty much an open book, no pun intended. Chella Man is easy to find online, and he and Mary V make regular contributions on social media, especially YouTube. Man's book, Continuum, is part of the Penguin Workshop's Pocket Change series, small books about big ideas. Next week on this show, I'll talk with Leo Baker, a gender non-binary professional skateboarder who's often considered one of the top competitors in the world. They authored the book, Skate for Your Life. A current exhibition at the Tucson Museum of Art takes an inclusive approach by asking four curators to each choose a contemporary artist they admire and present four solo shows together as one. Four by Four removes the idea that there is one dominant narrative about life. It reminds us that the range of lived experiences is varied and nuanced. Throughout the month of June, you'll be hearing conversations between the curators and the artists they chose.
I was hiking last week and I realized that I'm only looking down because I'm more worried about the crawling things <laughs> that, my, that coexist with us in the desert, you know? That, and I realized that, oh, that, that's very interesting because in the studio I've been also looking down a lot. My name is Nazafarin Lotfi. I'm an artist and educator and I live in Tucson. I'm Jeremy Michalazek, the John and Linda Ender Director and CEO here at the Tucson Museum of Art, and I'm the curator, one of the curators of 4x4. For me as a curator, I'm always interested in artists that are sort of working in between things. With Nazo Farin's work, it's really about the negative space that is so critically important in which the work lives and sort of speaks, and I think that's really interesting and it has its own sense of investigation. I remember it was this sculpture that I had it on the floor when it was in early stages, and the second I put it on the ground, it immediately like opened up to this other world that I wasn't really thinking about, that non-human world. And that was, that was like when I knew this was the right track. It is an exhibition that is composed of three photographs and uh, three floor sculptures. There are only six pieces in the exhibition itself, so it is a very sort of stark installation. However, the way that you enter the space, we actually specifically moved a wall in front to really force viewers to walk through the space in a specific manner. I was born and raised in Iran, and I finished my undergraduate at the University of Tehran. Then I moved to Chicago for graduate school. My work changed a lot since I moved here. The Southwest has such a rich history of representation. Like I had seen so much photography and painting from the Southwest, so I had an idea of the kind of art that possibly were, uh, was being produced here, but um, I wasn't necessarily that interested in that. But I was very interested in arriving to that point that the environment or m moving to this new place would change my work as a process of internalization. And I don't have a very strong sense of place usually. I think it has to do with my background growing up in Iran and not really developing that sense of like commitment to a particular place. And I've been trying very hard to make connections to the South, to Tucson particularly. It was very important for me to like learn things about the landscape here, learn the names of trees, plants, different kinds of cacti, birds learn about the politics of this place, learn about the border politics, and then figure out how do I, as an immigrant, as a brown body figure, like, fit in within all of that. So it is Southwestern art. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say it's necessarily an easy exhibition. I would say it's something that's going to challenge viewers coming to the museum and really exploring what's in front of them. When you look at a work like Nazo Farin's where you, again, that investigation is there, and sometimes it's just those subtle nuances that will turn and really explain this greater concept of really how this artist feels in this environment, what influences her, and what speaks to her, and that sometimes it can be incredibly private as well. You may not see the border issues, or you may not see her upbringing in a lot of these works, but it's there. Because I was thinking about the body and the landscape and bringing them together somehow, I was interested in like, lowering and thinking about something that expands instead of grows vertically. And then it was very interesting because what I arrived at was that the vertical body is often is the male body, is often the able body, is often the subject. And the horizontal body is the body that is disabled, that is deceased, that is wounded. 
um, it's the female body yeah. or is the object. So that binary immediately was very triggering and the horizontal form became extremely political and important for me to work with because it was defined by a certain lack and that lack is what I identify with and it's important for me to find those spaces that are defined by certain forms of lack and activate them or reimagine them. What was it like to work together? I don't know. <laughs> um, so Jeremy was very easy. Whatever I said, he said yes. So I, that's great. It is a privilege to work with artists. It's an absolute privilege. And for myself, as a director of an institution, not necessarily my full-time role as not a curator, to have the space and ability to do this is really going back to what I love about museums. He said that, oh, like maybe it can be just a photograph and the sculptures. And that really like helped me to like ease my anxiety of like filling up this space, which can be a very large space, but that was not my intention. The work sits in a conceptual space that is very different than the other four or other three artists in the exhibition. This just goes to show how diverse this region really is and really the amazing professional artists that are living and working here. Artist Nazifar and Lotfi talked with TMA Chief Executive Officer Jeremy Mikolazak in a story produced by Andrew Brown. You can see the television story about 4x4 now on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook and Instagram pages. The shared exhibition will be on view at the Tucson Museum of Art through September 26th. Next week, join us to hear Alejandro Macias talk about reflecting the themes of heritage, immigration, and Americanization in his art. Tucson is currently experiencing a housing shortage, but this is not the first time homes in this region have been in short supply. In this interview for the Archive Tucson Oral History Project, John Wesley Miller tells producer Angus Anderson about how his family moved here to start a new life in 1948. Uh, my mom called my little sister and I to the dinner table and said, kids, we have something to tell you. And I said, oh, good. And she said, well, we're going to move to Tucson, Arizona. I said, oh, no. We arrived here on the 28th of January, 1948. So we left Kansas City at seven below zero, got on a train, came all the way to Tucson. I think it was 26 hours later. My dad met us downtown at the train depot in shirt sleeves at two o'clock in the morning. At that point, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. My dad had rented one room near Country Club and uh, 18th Street. And uh, Randolph Park was just a desert along Country Club at that point in time. When we got up the first morning, my dad drove us downtown on a two-lane road from Country Club. I think it was paved, I'm pretty sure. You could see the, the Pioneer Hotel and Valley Bank driving down Broadway. 
it was like this wonderful feeling of feeling at home. When we hit Stone, which was the highway at that point, 1948, the highway went right through the middle of town on Stone Avenue. We hit Broadway and Stone and went north to the Pioneer Hotel and had breakfast in a little coffee shop. We didn't go to the fancy restaurant. For me, coming from Webb City, Missouri, this was a big town. Then the following week, I went to Catalina Junior High, which is now Doolin. And they had Latin, they had everything. A lot of the kids in my class had only been here a year or a few years. Like after World War II, kids were moved here by their parents because their dad was stationed here. Uh, there was a housing shortage. We literally lived in a converted chicken house. The whole apartment was one room. My mom and dad had a sheet around their bed so my little sister and I couldn't see them making love. Uh, we slept on a couch that folded out. Indoor plumbing was a kitchen sink, which mom laid looked beautiful by putting feed sack material around the front of it. There was a little shower that I remember that was a prefab thing, like about two by two, and that's where we took a shower, but we had to walk across the landlady's backyard to go to the bathroom. My dad came here because he had a job to run a housing project, and so we were in the building business. From the day I got here, we were always building. It was just part of the life I grew up in. The storyteller was John Wesley Miller, a builder and sustainable energy advocate who still lives in Tucson, produced by Angus Anderson. Archive Tucson is an oral history project of special collections at the University of Arizona Libraries. You can find more stories from Tucson's past at archivetucson.com. And on this week's Arizona 360, Christopher Conover talks to the newly appointed Department of Housing Director Tom Simplot. The topic is how rising demand for housing is driving down affordability. Watch it Friday evening at 8.30 on PBS 6. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you to De Grazia Gallery and the Sun Museum for their support of Arizona Public Media.